dramatic irony is one of my favorites um, because it's when the reader actually knows more information than the protagonist point of view character, whatever. And so it's when, you know, okay, so go back to that scenario of walking up to this door and we're like, whoa, what's, I don't know what's behind that door and neither does the protagonist, but then the camera, it's very Hitchcock, right? The camera, it shows you the big, whatever awful monster thing that's behind the door and then we're like oh my god it's back there and then the we go back to the point of view of the protagonist and they're like it's fine i'll just let me get it i'll answer it you know and we're like no don't do it like we have dread or whatever like we're having an emotional experience that they are not having because they don't know they might not be afraid they think it's normal hello and welcome to your next draft I'm Alice Sudlow, and in this podcast, I'll teach you how to finish your first draft, edit your next draft, and craft a publication-ready novel. I am a developmental editor, avid reader, and story nerd. I help writers write and edit books they're truly proud of, and then publish stories readers love. Every week, I'll give you quick, actionable tips you can use right away to finish your next draft. Stick with me and with your editing process, and soon you'll publish an amazing book. Welcome to your next draft. Today, I have a bit of an unusual episode for you, something I haven't done on the podcast before. I'm welcoming back my first returning guest of the podcast, author and editor Kim Kessler. Like me, Kim is a StoryGrid certified editor and, not like me, she's also the author of the novel According to Plan. And in this episode, Kim and I are going to do a close analysis of a scene from the movie Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. If you've listened to the last couple of episodes of this podcast, you'll be familiar with this scene. I've been talking about it a lot because it's just so good and such a great example of excellent storytelling. But here's the thing. The whole time that I was preparing for those episodes, I was running all these ideas by Kim. I'd analyze a section of the scene and then I'd get on Zoom with her and I'd say, hey, what do you think about this? And she'd say, yeah, I think that's spot on. Or have you considered this? And then I took all that feedback and all those ideas, and I went back to my script and put together episodes 32 and 33 of Your Next Draft, all about how to create emotion in your readers and how this specific scene of Spider-Man creates really powerful emotion in us as viewers. You can find those episodes at alicesudlow.com slash 32 and alicesudlow.com slash 33. I worked hard to keep those episodes tidy and direct and to the point. They're a tight 21 and 26 minutes, respectively. But by the time I finished, all I could think was, this represents like one-tenth of all the great ideas that Kim and I had together and the epiphanies that we had as we broke down this scene. So I decided to ask Kim to talk it all through with me again. She was not hard to convince. We love these kinds of conversations. And this time, I recorded that conversation so that you can hear it too. So consider this episode the uncut, or at least the much, much less cut, appendix to episodes 32 and 33, or maybe the -the behind-the-scenes version of those episodes. Kim and I are studying the leap of faith scene in Spider-Man in intense detail. We cover a lot of ground, including these key topics. First, where this scene fits in the story as a whole, including the external and internal stakes of the movie. Second the sequence of events leading up to the leap of faith scene, 
and where we think that the leap of faith scene actually begins and ends. We had different takes on this. Third, the elements of story in the leap of faith scene. You'll hear us call them the five commandments, the inciting incidents, progressive complications, turning point, crisis, climax, and resolution. Yes, I know those are six things. Fourth, the external and internal value shift in the leap of faith scene, and why the external value shift was so tricky for me to pinpoint. Fifth, the way that every single element in the leap of faith scene, from the shots in the scene to the lines of dialogue to the colors and even the frame rate, creates enormous contrast between the beginning value and the ending value of the scene, and how that creates an emotional experience in us as viewers. Plus, you'll also hear Kim talk about one of her favorite topics, creating narrative drive, the momentum that keeps readers or viewers engaged in a story. She defines three types of narrative drive, suspense, mystery, and dramatic irony, and we talk about how different scenes in the movie rely on different types of narrative drive and why that works. If you've listened to a few episodes of Your Next Draft already, you'll hear many of the editing concepts that you're already familiar with in action in this scene. And if you're new to the podcast, you'll learn how and why this scene works. And then you can go explore previous episodes to find out how to use those editing concepts in your writing. You don't have to have listened to any previous episodes in order to get a lot out of this conversation. But I do recommend watching the scene first so that you know what we're talking about. You can find it at alicesudlow.com slash 34. Story analyses like this are some of my favorite things to do. This is what it's like to go watch a movie with me, quite honestly. This is the conversation that I have for one or two or five hours after a movie. And Kim and I had a great time recording this episode. I hope that you enjoy it as much as we did. Let's dive in. All right, Kim, I am so excited to have you back on the podcast so that we get to talk about Spider-Man. Yes, I'm just so excited to that we get to hang out way more now that you're doing your own business thing and we get to have all these amazing conversations. I'm very excited to bring you on the podcast, record this conversation and share our collective editing brilliance with the world. Yes. It's such a fantastic movie. It's such a fantastic story. The scene is so good. Like there's just, there's so many things to love about Into the Spider-Verse. This scene specifically The reason why I chose this scene as a scene to study is because of all the scenes in this movie, this is maybe the scene that has the highest level of transformational emotion. There are, there's the climax later on that's also really beautiful and brilliant. There are, there's, there are so many moments throughout the movie where he's challenged in different ways that have all their own emotion tied to them. But I think if I were to pick one scene of the movie that has the most emotion and the most character transformation in it, it's this scene. So let's talk about what this scene is in the context of the story as a whole. So, yeah. Well, I was thinking as you're saying like this scene, I'm thinking, you know, it's, because of where this scene is located in the story, um, you know, as the we're in the all is lost moment, we're in the dark night of the soul and we're, we're emerging, you know, we're emerging from that and we're crossing over into um, the ending payoff or act three, act four, depending on how you want to call it. (laughs) But we're going from like 
the lowest low and we're, we're, we're crossing the threshold of value to the upper, you know, the positive spectrum of going like, oh, we were, you know, we had failed on so many levels. Um, and then now we are, we are succeeding on so many levels, like, and just ha- feeling the, the, when you cross the equator of the value spectrum, right, which doesn't make sense if we're not looking at something visually. So, but you know what I mean? Like we're going from, from failure, um, you know, to, to, to a form of success. Like the villains hasn't been defeated yet. Right. So it's not like, right. That's why we're not at the climax. Right. But we have crossed this threshold. Um, and once you cross that threshold, there is no going back down. Like he's never not Spider-Man after this. That's you the know what thing. I mean? So the villain, this is that first time when we do that. The villain has not been defeated, but Miles has self-actualized. Yes. That's what's happened yes. here. And his, and that's what needs to happen in order for the villain to be defeated, yes. right? So we his, have to have this transformation in Miles in order to have the external, like, you know, save everybody or whatever. His external question, the external question of the story, the stakes of the story are, can Miles save his friends? Like, it's an action story. The stakes are life and death. The question is, can he save his friends? And it's really important because he has to be the character who stays behind when they shut down the portals to the other multiverses uh because if any of his friends stay behind they can't survive in his universe so if he isn't there to shut it down somebody will die so his question is can he save his friends can he be the person who lets who sends them all through the portal and shuts it down without external help he will be alone at the point when he has to shut it down but his internal question I'll be curious to know what your thought is on his internal question because I haven't actually articulated what I think it is. His internal question is something around can he be ready to do the thing? Can he embody uh, Spider-Man? Can he? Is he ready? Is he truly a superhero? Is he truly... Can we expect things of him? Now I'm thinking back to the the beginning of the movie when... He's told by his teacher that he is trying, she sees him trying to undervalue himself. He actually fails a test by getting every single answer on a a, um, truth or false question wrong. wrong. And she's like, the only way you could get this all wrong is if you knew the right answer and intentionally chose the wrong one. So actually we get 100% on this test and I see that you're trying to to undersell yourself i need you to write an essay on your expectations for your life and your dreams for your life like take the concept of great expectations and write me an essay on it so there's this question for him of who he is becoming and he he draws this mural where the text on the mural is no expectations like there's kind of some smothering of himself that we see Mm -hmm. in the beginning of the movie um and yeah, so like, and is it, you know, coming from like the pressure that he's feeling to be excellent, you know, to be, um, to just like to break the mold or like whatever, whatever sort of like concepts he has in his head that, you know, that his parents have, you know, put in him and, and told him or, you know, what, like the fact that he's switching schools and going from his other, you know, going from his, you know, neighborhood school to a different school, you know, like, 
Right. All of that stuff. And he's just like, I don't want that thing. Like, you know, he just, it's a, yeah, he's, he's definitely, um, I don't know. And I wonder why exactly. Like it just doesn't feel authentic to him. It feels like, is it, yeah. What is it that he's, what is it that, is he truly doubting himself or is he, or is it not feel authentic? Like what is the thing that makes him be like, meh, I don't really want that. This is such a good question. And not the direction I thought this podcast was going to go. Yeah. The thing that I'm wondering, and so, so the question I'm wondering is, and I think it has to do with his uncle and his dad. So, like, the fact that he has, he has two people that he looks up to, right? He has these two mentors. Um, one is his dad. His dad is a cop. Um, and then he has his uncle who... I don't know that we, you know, know necessarily what he does. And I don't know that Miles necessarily knows what he does, but he knows that he, he loves his uncle. His uncle is cool. His uncle loves him. Like they have a really cool relationship. He encourages Miles in different ways, um, than his, his parents do, than his father does. And so the tension that's been playing out between these brothers, right? Between the father and the uncle about who are you going to be? How are you going to show up in the world? And it feels like that is the tension that Miles is. He doesn't know. He's not sure. Right. And what's yes. interesting from a, from like a, a worldview revelation perspective, like there's factual knowledge about his uncle that he does not know. He doesn't know how far deep he is in with all this stuff. Like he doesn't, you know what I mean? He doesn't know who his uncle, what his uncle has been up to and, and kind of the trap that he's stuck in, in that way. Um, and so he doesn't have all the information about whatever went down between his dad and his uncle, like he doesn't know that. And so he's just, you know, he's got an immature worldview. He doesn't know what he doesn't know. And so I think when we have people like that, that we're looking up to, and we don't really know where we fit, we want to love everybody, be friends with everybody. We don't want, we don't want to miss out on things. So we just, we don't know how to navigate between these worlds um, when those worlds don't get along. Um, And so anyway, I think that that the familial relationship there um, is a big, to me, feels like a big part of of what he's wrestling with because he identifies and and connects with his uncle so much, um, and you know, it's been in his life forever. You know that kind of thing. And there's something in him that he really clicks with. Like they just click, and his dad is like fundamentally against that thing. So I think it feels probably like. His dad is fundamentally against Miles. Like, oh, if I'm like, and there's something that's going to be wrong with me because I don't connect with you, dad. Like, I don't click with you. I click with my uncle. And like, so there's just, there's, those are the kinds of messages then that Miles would have received that are like, no, not those parts of you, these parts of you. And he's like, no, if you don't want all of me, you don't get any of me. So I'm going to fail the test. You know, I'm just riffing on what I imagine it would, you know, what I imagine it would be like in, in that sort of scenario and in, in, the mind of the character but um well i think that his uncle and his dad like that as a tension of these two mentors these two models is huge because then you get to the like the preamble before the scene that we're we really our core scene here so in their core scene it's the scene where miles actually leaps off of the building and becomes spider-man but before that happens like a a few minutes before that happens he's in this fight with his um with all of the spider people at aunt may's house and the 
the the bad guy, Doc Ock, comes and finds them. He's been followed by his uncle, who is the Prowler. So he's discovered that his uncle is the Prowler. He got followed by his uncle and by all the bad guys to Aunt May's house. And they ended up in a fight where he is watching his uncle, who is his mentor throughout his life, fight Peter Parker, who is his new Spider-Man mentor. He kind of has three mentors. He's got his uncle, he's got his dad, and he's got Peter Parker, the Mm -hmm. failed Spider-Man turned kind of redeemed spider-man his gut yes oh his gut it makes me so happy uh it's so funny it's so great so he's got his three mentors and two of his mentors are in intense combat there in aunt may's house and you can see as he's watching them fight him panicking him flitting in and out of invisibility not sure what to do frozen he doesn't want either of them to get hurt and yet his uncle is on the bad guy side and His uncle doesn't know that this is Miles, so he gets him by the throat and he's got him on the roof of the building and he's about to, like, choke him or throw him off the building in order to get the the goober, the device that they're trying to, that they need to save the world. The MacGuffin. The MacGuffin. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. The MacGoober. (laughs) Yes. Peter Parker calls it a a goober and uh, I enjoy that. He's like, there's always something you gotta get. There's the the thing. thing. There's the the other thing. Again, another way to, like, lampshade yes. silliness of all of it yeah. yes we just need the one item the macguffin <laughs> if we just had the macguffin um so he, then he's staring at his uncle who's choking him on the roof and he pulls off his mask and reveals that he's miles and they have this moment of recognition where he's facing his uncle at his uncle's worst like at his uncle's strength of evil and then His uncle is faced with the choice of, do I continue on the path of killing my nephew or do I release my nephew knowing that I'm not going to make it out of here if I disobey Kingpin? Uh, Mm -hmm. Uncle Aaron knows what's happening. He knows what's what's going to happen. Which I imagine is how he gets in this sort of mess in the first place, right? Like, you know, you're, you're doing what you need to do and you're going along. And at some point, if you get wrapped up with somebody as awful as Kingpin, like you're, you're really stuck in it and you're trapped in it. And so it's like, a it's its own, you know, status tragic. Yes. You know, kind of thing. Yep. You know, yep. It's just, yeah. It's just like, okay. Um, anyway. And so his uncle's, do the right thing. yeah. His uncle's redemptive moment is that he lets go of Miles and he lets Miles live. And his reward for that is that Kingpin shoots him. And Miles then watches as Uncle Aaron dies. And so he watches as this mentor who he admires very, very deeply and connects with and feels like his his uncle gets him in his artistic creative side and his kind of rebellious side too. Like he can sneak down into yeah. um into the the subway tunnels and paint murals that his dad is telling him take the stickers off of the signs and everything so like his dad kind of feels like he's got the structured legal right and wrong follow the correct path and uncle aaron's kind of more edgy and wild like you can break boundaries you can explore be creative um and so he watches uncle aaron die and then from there he is he's He's furious. He's fired up with the revenge emotion to carry him to Kingpin, but he doesn't have the skill or the ownership of his his identity that will allow him to go up against Kingpin. So his 
spider friends take him back to his house and they sit there and say, you're not ready. You can't come with us. We're going to go. We're going to leave and go through the portal. And Peter Parker is going to sacrifice himself by staying behind so that he can put the goober into the machine and stop the machine, which means he won't be able to go home. So he'll die in this universe. And Miles says, no, 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 I'm coming with you. And they say, you're not ready. And he says, no, but I have to be like, I, 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 I am so angry. I can't let him get away with this. We have to make him pay. And Peter Parker just ob- obliterates him, proves that he does not have the skill to do this. What I love about that moment is I was thinking about this, that like, so Miles is like, I'm ready. And then immediately he gets, you know, whatever the leg swipe thing. And then he, you know, catches him, whatever. And so he's, so Peter Parker is hanging from the ceiling and holding Miles by like the, the shirt of his, the chest of his shirt. Yeah. The front of his shirt. Yeah. Thank you. So he's hanging there and he's like, okay, do it then. Yep. Shock me, electrocute me, turn invisible, do this thing, like do something like this is your moment. This is your chance to do the thing. Do it. And then Miles can't do it. So I was like, oh, that's the, like, the really that felt like the turn of, like, failure. Like, yes. that yeah. was the, where he, he was given an opportunity. And, you know, all of the friends are outside the window listening and they're, like, wanting him to do it. And they hear his sounds of, like, <laughs> you know, and he just, he can't, he can't do it. And so then it feels like, then it's like, okay, it's been it's been proven. It is known that Miles is not ready. He does not have the ability to on command do it now. He can't, he doesn't know his, he can't use his powers like that um, at, at this stage. And so he's not ready. And so he, he was saying that he was, Peter Parker was saying that he wasn't. Now it becomes very clear to all that he's not ready. And so I was thinking about his crisis in that moment is, are you going to, ex- you know, are you going to accept it or not? Like, are you going to like not accept it in a way that's like, giving up but in order to do anything you have to still recognize reality as it is yes. and not make it wrong like there's nothing wrong with miles not being ready like he hasn't had to be yet like there's nothing he's not fundamentally flawed or broken in any way by the fact that he is not spider-man yet like he's not doing he that got yet. bit like four days ago yeah it's like barely a thing like yeah so so then what i loved is then he says he he yells to Peter Parker. He gets all wrapped up in the chair, right? And then he yells, um, when will I know I'm ready? So rather than saying, I'm still ready, Peter, I'm like, you know, he doesn't say I'm ready anymore. He's saying, when will I know I'm ready? And so I thought that was, that felt significant, like a shift of like, okay, I recognize that I might not possibly be ready, but when will I know that I'm ready? And then the answer he gets back is, you won't. It's not, it doesn't work that way. It's a leap of faith. Like you just, there isn't. And so then, then that's sort of, then he leaves and whatever. And so then we are at the end of that. He like struggles in his chair and he kind of comes to a place of like rest, his, of rest in his hands. His hands are on the, on the webs and he's just sitting there, which feels like the end of that scene, beginning of the next scene where then his dad comes and knocks on the door. Right? Yes. So, yes. Um, and I would posit that um, there's a moment, I think the crisis of that moment is, I think you're right, it's exactly what you're saying. Accept reality or keep trying to say 
that he's ready, despite the clear yeah. evidence. Right. I was like, keep fighting the truth. Like, yes. that was the only thing I wrote down. Like, like, what are you going to do? And and so the fact that he's like, all right, and cool, 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 cool. But I want to know this thing. And then he gets he gets the information that he needs. You won't know. Yes. You can't know. And I would suggest that's the resolution of this scene. But yes. the moment where he makes the decision that he's going to accept reality is, I think, while he's hanging from Peter Parker's hands and he's staring up at him and he's been groaning for like 15 seconds trying to make his powers work. And you can see you get another shot straight down on his face and you see all these emotions play over his face where it's like this frustrated desperation to kind of this heartbroken panic a little bit like he just looks devastated gutted and he also kind of recognizes nothing that's is happening like, here acknowledged reality so it's that's the sort of the 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 crisis is clear it's like the turning point is <laughs> he just got his ass kicked you know like yes. and you're there and you're like cool do it and he's like i can't do it like the fact that he can't do it is like cool you can't and then the crisis is are you going to accept this or not and in the moment of the reality of like oh i i kind of have to yeah. accept this so that feels like you know how like in a crisis is or not a crisis in a climax it's sort of like twofold there's the decision yes. and then there's the action yes so it feels like he like realizes it accepts it kind of like melts you know in depression yep and then, and then peter then, parker puts him down so he's standing on the ground and he's not fighting he's not running out the window he's right. not continuing to he's try to force standing. the issue he's just standing there and then he gets wrapped up yep and then he yell then he asks his question when will i know i'm ready yeah and then he gets the he gets the thing stuck the final piece of shush you yep. know like puts it over his mouth and then he answers him and then he just has to sit there with that information like yep. okay now what you know so but yeah i like I like that the the question of when will I know I'm ready is a clear demonstration yes. that he has shifted, right? That his mindset has changed, that he's coming at this from a different angle. Yes. Like maybe I'll get, you know, because he still wants to go, you know, he would if they let him. So he just is like, okay, give me a little more. Like when, when can I, you know, like. He starts the scene saying, I am ready. I am ready. Yeah. Let me go. I am ready. And he ends the scene with, when will I know I'm ready? Very clear yeah. contrast. Yep. And I love that yep. about stories, getting that yeah. clear contrast in scenes. That's yeah. like fundamentally and what I'm I was looking thinking, for in scenes. I was noticing, um, because you had said like the question, the external question here is can Miles save his friends? And in that scene specifically, they do a really great job of like renaming all of the global stakes of the whole thing. Yes. Like, okay, we're going to save the friends. No, I got to help. No, I'm going to do it. But you'll die. But what about MJ? But what like they do all of this stuff where they are able to like break it all down. And like, yeah, if you just watched, you know, that scene and this next one, you're like, oh, yeah, that's. It's basically, it's the microcosm of the entire story yes. of, which is always what you'll, I think what you'll find in those really key global, um, commandment moments, you know, like it becomes a microcosm for the scene. And I think this scene specifically, the coming out of the all is lost and into the, you know, into the ending payoff, um, that, that it, because it's where this internal shift happens, you know, it's where this is happening that it's where 
you're going to really, I mean, you're really, really, really going to feel it. We're crossing yes. that, that threshold and we're like, oh yeah, that's what the story is about is this crossing this specific threshold in these life values. We went so, down to our lowest low and now we're yeah. up to the highest high that we've seen at any point in this movie so far. We can yes. take it higher from there, but this is right. the highest contrast of- And the contrast yes. of low to high yes. of, you know, any time that you're going to get that is always going to be- yeah, High to higher is that. also exciting, but it's not the also same exciting. exciting. Low it's to high. It's only exciting because we had the low yes. first. Yes. Like, We've got now to we're get- like, oh man, not only did we go here, but we went there because you're still, you're still experiencing that second- Yes. Highest high in relation to the lowest low that you've already – you're still looking at it in relation to that thing. Yes. A really qualified yeah. person who then wins a prize is not exciting. Not exciting. But a really determined person who wanted to do something, failed at it utterly, and then worked really hard to become qualified and then win a prize. Like they become qualified and then they win the prize. The prize is exciting because we saw the low. The, yeah. the high of succeeding at saving his friends, spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen the movie, I don't know why you're listening to this episode if you haven't seen the movie, <laughs> but spoiler alert, he does save his friends. Again, I feel like that is also a thing that we know is coming because we know yeah. Spider-Man and we know the Spider-Man story. So the way in which it's fun is by the surprises and by the specificity within these scenes. Yeah. And so he does save his friends. The reason why we are excited that he saves his friends is because we watched him fail here. And you talk about how this scene restates all the stakes of the story. Uh, we could go off and talk forever about all his lost moments but one of the things that, personally, I think a great all is lost moment does is it makes you feel how badly you failed. And one of the ways that you can make it clear how badly you failed is to literally restate it. We failed on this head and this head and this head. And the consequences are that. Like, that's how badly we failed. And that's what this scene does. He literally states, these are all of the ways in which I failed. Yeah. So which part of the sequence? So we've got his, he watches his uncle die. His spider friends take him back to his room and prove to him or force him to recognize in himself that he is not ready. He's tied to his chair. He's, he's sitting there for probably hours. We watch the sky pass. So the clouds pass on the, in the sky. So it's probably been a, a decent period of time. And then his dad comes to the door and he gives Miles this emotional speech, which Miles cannot respond to because he's tied up, which he's got webs over his mouth. Exactly. He's he he physically cannot, but that's his dad doesn't know that. And so his dad is interpreting this as my son and I have already had a rift earlier in this movie, and now my son is refusing to respond to me. So this rift is deepening. So and Miles knows that too. Like Miles knows that. Right. And he's trying. He rolls to the door. Yes. Like, so he's like, I can see your shadow moving around in there. And he like, you know, holds still, but he does go towards the door. For a so second, he, he holds there. still. And I'm like, okay, so he's trying to play this as maybe dad won't think that I'm ignoring him because he'll assume I'm not in the room. Ah, uh, shoot. He saw my shadow move. So like that plan's busted. Uh, yeah. So he does roll to the door and he, he is like engaging on every level that he can with this conversation and knowing that his dad hearing no response from him is being further gutted by this conversation. So he knows mm -hmm. that 
even though he has no ability to do anything, the fact that he's not doing anything is hurting his dad. And his dad is restating to him all these things that he sees in Miles and kind of giving him this really heartfelt, emotional pep talk. Yes. So what I was noticing in this is, you know, in in the, the first podcast episode about this scene, you talked about going, you know, he kind of, he's going through this progression um, where he you know, he reaches Aunt May and like he gets validated and all that there. And, um, and I was seeing, so basically I was like, oh yeah, it's just a progression of validation because even his friends were validating him, right? They validate him from the beginning of that scene where they're like, we've all lost someone, right? Like I lost this, like they're validating his experiences, feelings. They're saying like, you know, so I love that he never actually isn't validated. Like he's never not supported. He's never not spoken, you know, spoken life into him or whatever. Right. So his dad says a couple things, um, that I think are, well, I am really confident are, you know, intentional choices by the writers in which to make us feel this way. Um, but yeah, so his dad is 100% validating him. He's, and he, what I love is that he's validating miles, right? Yes. He doesn't know that miles is Spider-Man. Yes. He doesn't know that anything's happened. He's validating miles. And he says words like, You've got this spark, right? He talks about the spark. He says, it's amazing. And it's yours, right? Like, do with it. Like, he's just, like, telling him, I see you, son. And all those things that you thought I didn't see that, like, were like your uncle and I was saying was bad, like, basically, right? He's like, no, I see them. You have the spark. Like, I see you. And so he's doing all that. And it's, you know, and his dad knows what's happened to his uncle. And he's like, something happened. And he's, but he can't, he won't tell him through the door, like, so it's just like there's all this unstatedness, but then what he does say is just, yeah, and it's it's just, it's beautiful. It's it's a beautiful thing, and it's like that, healing that rift um, between his, you know, him and his dad, or at least beginning to, you know what I mean? Seeing his dad, I think, come over to his side in that way, like the the olive branch or whatever, like he's really humbling himself, you know, like, um, oh, yeah, really, you know, and it's a very, um, yeah, it's just it's highly meaningful. One of the things that's coming to mind for me as you're talking about the ways in which his dad sees him being like his uncle is I wonder if you would agree that his dad has kind of prescribed a route to success for him and he wants so badly for Miles to be successful because he sees that he can be, which is how he got him into this magnet school because he's really smart. He has the capacity to go really far. And his dad is a by-the-book kind of guy. So he's pushing him into these structured, accepted routes to success. And in and that might feel kind of smothering to Miles. Like like that is boxing it's him in. Pressure. It is a lot, of, a pressure. lot of pressure. And his uncle is this creative outlet that doesn't have boundaries like that. And so for his dad to come and say, your spark is yours. You get to choose what you do with it. And whatever you do with it, you're going to be amazing. I know that you're going to be amazing. Is It's permission to be the way that he is. Yes. To not have to conform. Exactly. To just my you know dad's way of being it's, or dad's path it's right? no yeah. longer conforming to a prescribed structure it's permission for him to own himself yeah. and one of the things that i find interesting about the 
whole structure of the different Spider-Men coming from different Spider-Verses is that each one of them has unique powers. Like, they're all different. Yes. And so Spider-Man Miles doesn't have to do the things that the other Spider-People do in order to be successful. He has to own his own strengths. Yes. So from a very specific uh, visual storytelling thing, the fact that this scene opens with his hands the way they are on the webs behind him on the chair, right? He's like holding on to them. And there's like, he's stuck. There's nothing really going on. His dad says words like spark. Yes. And then he gets the resolve. And then he literally has like the thing in him, right? It's so like, you know, it's the thing that we get when we do, you know, these sort of larger than life, whether it's superhero or certainly we talk about it in, you know, in any sort of like animated quote, like kids kind of story, like the metaphors get to be really, really, really crystal clear. Yes. And it's, and it's beautiful, right? So he has his literal sparks that he uses to free himself of these constraints of like anyone telling him who he should be or that he is or isn't ready or whatever. Like, it's like, yeah, <laughs> right? Like, well, yeah, if you can break out of the, of all of this stuff, then I guess you are, right? Like he's, he's able to do that for himself. Um, Another thing. Yeah, and shot for shot to watch it go from no electricity to like, and then they go back to his hands and you're like, oh, there it is again. But now he has it. And another thing that I think about when I'm going through sequences like this, and I think that this is not 100% of what's going on because obviously in order to be skilled at a skill, it includes practice. Like you have to practice something. Yeah. But one of the things that I think about a lot of times is what is motivating the thing that you're doing? So when he was initially trying to tell everyone that he could go do the thing, he was motivated by desperation and revenge and loss. Like his emotions were wrecked. That was not a place of strength for him to be coming from. And we could get into all kinds of questions. There are tons of stories about like, is revenge a beneficial motivator or right. is there something better that produces more produces results that lead to greater flourishing across the board? Yeah, and more agency. Yes, right? not just your agency to get what you want, but it's that it's that selfless creating more agency for others, right? Yes. Using your agency for others. Yes, and so he is motivated by revenge and loss and and desperation initially, and then he has to sit long enough for that emo- those emotions to settle down they don't disappear but they settle down they're no longer leading the charge and then his dad tells him how great he is how he has this spark and so he gets this new motivation this new kind of emotional space of i can do it ifness like i can do it i can sit here own myself and do the thing so it's more like a determination and resolve than it is desperation and revenge. And it feels very um like uh I don't know, healthy, I guess. Exactly. Like, let's take a pause. Yes. Like if you have to tie yourself up in a chair with some spider webs to just sit with your emotions for a minute before taking an action, like fine. But like it feels like a very good like like when big things are happening, like let's just take a minute. Take three deep breaths. Like, yeah, like, let's do this thing 
And then let's get back because it's all about getting back to the truth, yes. right? Like, because we're like, oh, we have to. It's like, do you though? I, you don't have to. They can make choice. Like, it's you're projecting your attachment for a specific outcome onto reality. And that always leads to suffering, yes. right? Like, it's like, that's not going to work. And I started with like, reaffirming that you do need practice because if you have never tried a new skill then it doesn't matter how much deep breathing you do resolve you have you're not going to be able to leap from tall buildings and fly like it's not going to work there's a scene really early on right after miles gets his spider powers where he's like spider people jump off buildings and he goes up to the top of a really tall building and he looks down and he almost jumps and then it's a really funny scene where you see him going back down the building and he goes up to like a one or two story building and he's looking down off of that one. Like he's recognizing, you know, it doesn't, I am not ready for it that. doesn't yeah. matter how much faith he has in that scene. If he leaps off the building full of faith, he's not going to survive. So he does right? need practice. And there's a, a whole yes. like he's got the whole movie to practice. He does practice. He does get mentored by Peter Parker. Peter Parker's not the most like strategic, structured mentor when it comes to teaching lessons. Right. It's a very learning on the job, chaotic yeah, he, what, kind of thing. He swings through, He's, you know, they have to go break in. Yes. They have to get the goober from Doc Ock. Like yes. they have to go do all this stuff. And so there's all of these times when he's getting to practice. He had to be, inv- he had to go invisible to like, yes. and, you know, there's all those things that were happening. So he has um, practiced by the time he gets to this mm-hmm. point. So he does have skills and the ability to use them. So what he's missing at this point is that emotional grounding that allows him to access them and revenge and despair were the wrong emotions to fuel him. But when he can get to resolve and determination and a sense of self-confidence and ownership, that allows him to tap into his power on command and use it effectively. And so from there, it builds. Like that's that emotional underpinning of the action I think connects ultimately to the message of a story. Like, can you accomplish your goal when your goal, when your motivation for accomplishing it is fueled by revenge and despair? Miles was not successful. Can you accomplish your goal when your motivation for doing it is resolve and determination and trusting yourself and listening to your mentors and taking the leap of faith that you were told is the way to do it? Yes, that is how he is successful. That's how we create meaning under these stories. It's not just what he does, but how and why he does right. it. Yep. Yep. I was loving, so just following the like, he's just validated. He's never not validated. He just gets validated in new ways over and over again. When he shows up at Aunt May's and he goes to unlock and open the door, it just sends, it knows he's Spider-Man. So it just opens. Yes. Oh, I hadn't right? even remembered like, that. Yes. Yeah. I I was like, oh, yeah. He's like, oh, it just opens because it's like, oh, hey, we know you. So I was like, there's another one, you know, and yeah, it was just great. It was like, there's just so many ways that he so then by the time he gets to the top of the building and he's ready to do it, like he's had all of this. He's had every event that has happened in the whole film up to this place of being like, OK, I don't know that I'm ready, but I I think, you know, but he has. But he also does know because he's been validated by all of these yes. things. Like Aunt May is like, oh, they're fit. Like she, he's got tools. He's not just willy-nilly running to the top of the building and jumping off. Like he's equipped, right? He has – Yes. And he has the signs and the all the things that have, are telling him, go for it, Miles. You know, like go for it. Like you can do it. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Are we ready then to jump into this final scene and talk about him going – 
like this this preparation montage and him leaping off the building. Yeah. Okay, perfect. So one of the things that I want to touch on here, let's start here. Let's talk about why they do this cut back and forth between him facing the building and jumping off the building and this preparation montage. Like it's not a it's it's not told linearly, it's told cutting back and forth. So the first shot that we get is from the ground looking up at this building, this really tall tower. And then from there, we see him going to Aunt May's. And then we cut back to him climbing, or I think on his way to the building. Then we cut back to Aunt May's. And then we cut to him climbing the building. And he's back at Aunt May's. And he's preparing his um, spider suit. And he's getting equipped. Like, she's telling him, took you long enough to get here. Um, And then we cut to him at the top of the building. And then he leaps and while he's falling, there's one more cutback, which is him at Aunt May's house where she's giving him the the spider slinger, the web slinger things to then says they fit perfectly. Made him myself. Like they fit. He is equipped. And so that's that last one comes in the middle of his fall before we as the viewer even know that he has web slingers. So what are your thoughts on why they decided to cut back and forth between that jump and that montage? So I think at this point, it's all about narrative drive, right? So it's all to create the feeling of excitement in the audience. So it's it's using, it's raising questions. It's giving us, it's mystery, right? Basically, they're using mystery to to create intrigue and excitement for us to like lean in and be like, oh my God, is he going to make it or not? Um, which is a little bit, we get to suspense by the end because Miles is like, am I going to make it? But Miles knows that he has the web slingers and we don't, right? So, so it's, it's putting us at the top of the building, you know, and he's got, he hasn't pulled his mask down on. He's got the hoodie, you know, he's standing there in this face and we're like, okay, whoa, what's going on? Oh, he went to Aunt May's like, and so it's, it's in putting us back and forth between those things. It is. I mean, visually, it's creating energy because there's lots and lots of movement, yes. which we've just had a long section of, you know, if you think about where we talk about, oh, man, that's just like another two-person scene and another two-person scene and another two-person scene and we had another two-person scene. You know, like sometimes if you have too much of the same thing in a row, which I don't think is really what they did here. I'm not saying that. But no, like, but- you know, because, you know, it's just, but it was still a lot of a lot of he's stuck. He's still, you know, um, he's, he's in his, we've been in the dorm room for a while, you know, like we've been in one location. So they've done a lot of things to prepare the ground, you know, the groundwork for now that he's, he's out, he's jumped out the window, whatever. Um, and he's on the move. Now we're moving. And so I think they use a lot of great visual cues to, to feel the movement that we get and the, the um otherwise because i think if you imagine if it was linear like i imagine they had a cut of it like you could you could yeah you know cut it that way and just see how it plays so what would it be he would he would jump out the window he would go to aunt may's he would go inside he would have to get the suit he would do the thing he would go he would get to the building he would look up he would go up the stairs he would get on the top he would hear the thing again and hit, you know, all the voices or whatever, like you can do it. And he would jump and then he would fall and then he would do the web slinger. You know what I mean? Yes. So it's not that it wouldn't work. I, I think we would still get um, an emotional whatever, but like, I don't think it would, would be bad or not 
I think you would still feel the feels because the feels have aren't just this scene. It's everything that's come before this scene. But I think because this is a film and because of the animation style that they're using and all of these pieces, using that narrative drive of, wait, what? What's going on? And and giving us like the kind of like, I don't know, I'm not sure. It gives us, um, it builds up some emotion of, you know, I don't know. Anxiety is not the word, but you know what I mean? Of anticipation. Like, anticipation. Yeah. Yeah, that then gets to pay off when with the web slingers and everything like that. But we're like, you know, it just it's keeping us off balance a little bit so that we're not quite sure what to expect. Um, and so it doesn't it's not just like a clean cut like he's ready now. It's like it's letting us kind of experience that. So yes. anyway, those are my perceptions. I think that's great. I have several. I have three thoughts for you off of that. First off, um, the if you cut it linearly. I started imagining as you t- as you were talking it through. What you would end up with is he paints his his suit. That's super cool. She gives him his web slingers. That's super cool. Then he goes to the subway and he waits for a train, and then he drives to the building, and then he walks up the stairs. And you know what's not super cool is waiting for a subway train, like. I think so it cuts out all the shoe leather I hate I that phrase is so confusing to me but there's all this like extra yes it takes the extra and it uses it intentionally to build to something we know he's going somewhere it's not that we were active and then we paused so we can wait for him to get somewhere actually I wonder if the first shot of that scene is him actually standing on top of the building in the hoodie because it's right before he pulls the mask down so I think it goes to the where he's on top and then I think it goes back and back and back and then brings us back to that moment then he pulls the mask and then goes like I think that might be what it is okay okay I'm I'm watching this through again because as soon as you were saying oh it shows we're going somewhere and let me show you how we got there like I mean that's like that's like a whole book narrative structure that, you know let me show you there's going to be a moment that's going to show up later let me walk you through all this you know it's yes like, uh-huh uh-huh you know dual timelines or whatever um, and doing that just in a scene is really interesting. Okay, so definitely the first shot is from the ground. You are looking from the ground up at the sky and lightning flashes in the sky. And you are it's like you're standing right at the base of a building and okay. you're looking all the way up. So the whole screen is filled with the facade of this building. But then right after that, and we see the lightning flashing, right after that we cut to Miles at the top of the building breathing hard with his with his hood his face he's Uh not he doesn't have his mask on he's we're just looking at him we've got sky behind him he's breathing hard we don't have enough context in that shot to know we're not really sure where he is yeah and then we cut to him walking into the shed aunt may's shed and he doesn't have his hoodie on so it's clearly not the same moment so now we're starting that back and forth of the 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 moment the the moment that he jumps to the preparation to get here. And because we intersperse things like waiting for the train with the uh, shots of the preparation in Aunt May's, I think we carry that same sense of anticipation into even those less exciting, those moments that are inherently less exciting, but when you put them in the context of this meaning, they feel like, oh my goodness, we're going somewhere. As I mean, opposed to and oh, the song they use yes. is so amazing. Yes. What's up, danger? It's like, oh, it just feel like and and there and the voiceover that's happening, like you just if you're not feeling chills, like I don't know what to tell you. Like So the next the next thing that I want to do with this, so I've got two two more thoughts on this like split thing. First off, could you define for everyone 
narrative drive and what you mean by mystery. So mystery, suspense, oh, yeah. and um, yeah. dramatic irony. So narrative drive, right? Narrative drive is just the way we handle information um, with the reader. So it's what the reader knows at any given time compared to what the character knows, what the protagonist knows, the point of view character, whatever. So it's what because you know the author knows all right um but the reader only knows what the author tells them yes and then the protagonist only knows what the author allows them to know um based on all the events in the story so when you have suspense um the term suspense which this is i'm using the term suspense purely in the context of narrative drive people use the word suspense in different contexts that mean something else so that's just not relevant to what I'm trying to say. But basically, in this case, it's just what I, what the reader knows and what the protagonist knows in relation to whatever is currently being talked about is the same information. Like, we don't know what's behind that door. Neither do they. You know, okay, we're going to reach for the doorknob and open it, and we don't know what's coming. We have no idea what's there, right? So that would be where we are on the same – we have the same level of information. Um, a mystery is when – the protagonist, point of view character, whatever, has more information um, than the reader does. So they're, you know, they know something we don't. And they're, and so that is a, that is, um, creates intrigue. Like we're like, hmm. And it only works, <laughs> it only works if you indicate to the reader that the protagonist knows something that you don't. Like, you have to give us enough information for us to raise questions and wonder, and then to go, oh, they know the answer, and I don't know the answer. Like, that is what's intriguing, because we know the answer is coming. Otherwise, we think, well, I don't know. They must not know either, and we think we're in suspense, which is just a different energy than mystery. It's so, a different energy, and then when the answer is revealed and they know it, we're like, well, that wasn't set up. We didn't know right? that they knew that. Like, hey, cheaters yeah exactly and it can it can feel depending on the story depending on all of the specifics it can feel it can feel unsatisfying yeah um so yeah so delivering and you always have to give the reader information always no matter what you are always having to give them information and it's just what information are you giving them how are you giving it to them when in what you know all of those pieces and then also compared to but what does the character know yes uh, dramatic irony is one of my favorites um because it's when the reader actually knows more information than the protagonist point of view character, whatever. And so it's when, you know, okay, so go back to that scenario of, uh, you know, we're going to the, to the, walking up to this door and we're like, whoa, what's, a, I don't know what's behind that door. And neither does the protagonist, but then the camera it's very hitchcock right like the camera whatever it switches to go it shows you the big whatever awful monster thing that's behind the door and then we're like oh my god it's back there and then the we go back to the point of view of the protagonist and they're like it's fine i'll just let me get it i'll answer it you know and we're like no don't do it like we have dread or whatever like we're having an emotional experience that they are not having because they don't know they might not be afraid they think it's normal so a scene in this movie that is chalk Full of dramatic irony and knows it and leans in all the way is the scene early on in the movie when Miles is painting graffiti under the, the, the tunnels of the city and there's a glowing spider that's crawling around in the rafters and it's like a five yeah. minute long scene. It's so like it 
ev- we know everything in this story is intentionally crafted. This was so yes. clearly intentionally crafted. You get five minutes or so of tension of he is spraying this this graffiti on this wall and the spider is crawling up his pants leg and then it's uh-huh. in his hood and then it is uh-huh. on his hand and then it's on the can and then pop, he knocks the lid off the can and the spider falls on the ground. Like it does that like three or four times all the way through the scene and you're the whole way, we know Spider-Man. We know that that spider is going to transform him. him. It's going to bite him. It will bite him. He is, it will change his life. And so we're sitting here the whole time going, the spider is on it, you. Like, dies. It, like, just dies so easily afterwards. It's just like... Right. Like, he just knocks it off. So the moment at the end of the scene... Like, and it, like, goes... Doesn't it go super zoom in on its fangs? Yes. And it's, like, yes. bites him. And he's, like, ah. And he, like, knocks it away. And it's, like, doesn't even face him at all. And we're, like, We get this... Waiting. So, so in that moment... Like we've waited the whole entire scene for him to get bitten. He finishes drawing. He finishes spray painting the mural. The music is done. Like the song that was this whole montage has ended. He and Uncle Aaron are just standing back watching it. We're like, wait a second. What happened to the spider? We know that that's what the scene is about. And the spider never bit him. And he's picked up his bag. Uncle Aaron's walked away and he's about to walk out the door. And then he looks down and there's a spider on his hand. And that's when we're like, there it is, the spider. And you get this this big, super close-up shot where the spider's fangs go in his hand. And we get like this three-panel, boom, 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 like we're watching a comic book of the closer, closer, closer view of the spider. And then it goes inside his body. We, get the, we watch the venom go into his veins. We watch his veins pulse. We watch his red blood cells start to change. And then it zooms back out to the screen of like outside his body. We're watching him. He looks at it completely unfazed and just swipes it off his hand and it falls down dead. So that there's so much dramatic just irony in the whole scene. your expectations in that, that's humor. Yes. Like, that's comedy, right? Like you're like, oh, you think it's this and then it just totally reverses it on you. Oh my gosh, it's so funny because we, it makes us, it's it's so entertaining in that moment for it yes. to be this buildup and then like this hilariously anticlimactic like thing. And yet we know it's still coming. Like it's still, still coming. More to come. This is yeah. still a Spider-Man movie. And that mm-hmm. is what's really tricky about stories that we have heard many times is that we know the story. So you have to find an interesting way to tell something we haven't seen before when we know we've seen it before. And so that scene, yeah. they did that by using dramatic irony, leaning all the way in. That's what this movie does really well is lean all the way into the fact that we've heard this movie, this story four dozen times. And so with that knowledge, we will play with the fact that the audience knows what's coming and we will show you what's coming and then not do what you expect with it. <laughs> it's so great. It's so it's good. So great. It's so good. So now that we have all those terms, we know what our, what our narrative drive is here in this scene. The next thing that I want to highlight in this cut back and forth between the, the view of the tower and the view of Miles and his montage is value shifts. These are some of my favorite things. Uh, I talk about them all the time. My clients get tired of me talking about value shifts because I'm like, you know it's coming. I'm about to bring up some value shifts. So the 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 value in this scene, the external, the internal value is so, so powerful. Like that's what we're here for is the internal change. There are so many values that you could state for that internal change when he goes from failure to triumph, when he goes from self-doubt to self-actualization. Like there are so many things that happen in this scene that it was honestly challenging for me to figure out what's the external value. Clearly a lot changes in this scene externally, 
But I'm so focused on the internal. This internal is so powerful that I almost missed what the external was. Kim, the external value is so beautifully pictured in the opening image of this scene. I would say that the external value of this scene is on the ground to in the air. And the opening image of this scene is on the ground, looking up at the tower, feet on the ground, like literally on the ground. We're looking up at the sky, looking up at the tower. There's no clearer way to communicate groundedness than him literally being on the ground. Like he is on the ground all the way through the preparation montage. He is on the ground when he's standing on the tower. But that's not what any of those moments focus on and make you feel as a re- as a viewer. Like that image of looking up at the tower from the ground emphasizes on the groundness so, so powerfully. So then when we get into the air, we've been prepped with that view of on the groundness. And one of the things that I talk about with scenes all the time is that your first half of the scene, your goal in the Everything leading up to the turning point crisis and climax is to emphasize the beginning value. So everything leading up to the moment when he has his turning point and his crisis, your point is to emphasize the beginning value, that he's on the ground. And the fact that before that this, this whole scene opens with a visual of being on the ground is really powerful. Yeah, well, and then, and even, and all the, so then all of those previous, you know, the cut, the cutback parts of him walking up to, you know, Aunt May's walking up to the shed, you know, he's, he's waiting, he's got his feet on the ground waiting for a subway. Like there's all of those different ways. And actually, I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure when he's spray painting his suit, it really shows him spray paint the feet. Yes, it does. It does. And those are going to be the same feet that are no longer touching the ground. Like, that's really funny. I I was like, oh, those are the feet. But as now you're saying it, I'm like, oh, the feet were a thing. Like, yes. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Which is where you started us off with every single choice they made is really intentional. Every single yeah. choice is one really thing, intentional. One visual thing that I'm, that I'm thinking of, which goes more like, you know, the sequence, it's more of the, you know, because it's, it's why this this you know however many minutes 10 minutes or whatever of of the film um you know from his uncle dying through his friends being like sorry miles you got to stay to dad talking to him to going to this thing like that whole section um you know specifically like going from like someone else's webs like someone else's webs have tied you up and silenced you right like because, you know, for your own good, right? Like, blah, blah, blah. Like, but he's trapped in those webs. And the fact that we see his hands and, like, he can't get out of them, then he's able to break out with his own spark. And now, not only is he not trapped in webs, but now he's using his own, they fit perfectly. Like, he's got his own, you know, just going from that trapped, imposed upon, like, mm, I can't think of the right word, but it's, you know, controlled. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, he's been limited, um, that kind of thing to, to breaking out of that, breaking out of other people's expectations, whether he's like, we don't expect for you to survive. We don't expect for you to succeed. We don't expect for you to do this or we, you know, whether, whatever those expectations are, depending on who the mentor is at any given moment, like for him to just be free of those things. So it's, it's interesting, like, 
on the ground to in the air as a very specific shift for that scene or part of the scene or you know this that part of the sequence the ending of the you know him actually like I'm going now like I'm doing it now I'm act I'm I'm externally actualizing this internal shift um yeah but just the that he actually isn't really touching the ground at all it's the web the web is going to be the thing that is he has to put faith in this other thing this other part of him now this you know yes. um, and that's the thing that that attaches him to the building you know it's just it's interesting like and in the cutting back and forth bit we don't even see aunt may give him the web slingers until he's already falling like yeah that yeah. is mystery not that is yeah mystery mystery, mystery. that is mystery yeah because miles knows right, right? miles already knows you know when he's climbing the building he knows he's got the web slingers right when he's right doing that like he knows that and the um, viewer doesn't know we make we can make the assumption because it's spider-man we know that if spider-man jumps off a building that's how he's going to rescue himself but we haven't seen that he's been given that until that moment right right so random question it's because i don't remember earlier in the scene or earlier in the film when he goes to the super tall building and then we see him walk back down and then he goes to another building that's not as tall what is it that he does after that on that building? So we just pulled up that scene, the scene where he initially plans to jump off a building really early on in the movie. He's just gotten his Spider-Man powers. He realizes he's Spider-Man. He opens up a Spider-Man comic. And what does Spider-Man do in the comics? He jumps off tall buildings. So he goes up to a tall building. And there's this really intense moment where we've got powerful music. He's about to jump off the building like Spider-Man. We get a good like 10 or 15 seconds of watching him him prepared to jump and then it cuts to him running music cuts, music cuts <laughs> complete silence he's running back down the building <laughs> his little shoes on the oh my gosh and then he looks around he's like there's a tall building there's an even taller building there's a really tall building there's a nice short building and he goes <laughs> we get him running up the stairs again to this really short building and he the same build of um of energy that he's going to jump and he finally, he runs, he runs, he's about to jump. I would guess that he's trying to jump to the building across the way. Yeah. And mm -hmm. he trips on his shoelaces, so he doesn't make it. He flails in midair. He's not prepared. Right. He's not ready. He's not ready. And then he bounces off a bunch of different surfaces because this is an animated movie and not live action. And so nobody dies in this scene, which they definitely <laughs> wouldn't come out well in this movie if he, it was live action. So, uh I'm thinking of who killed Roger Rabbit and the fact that Toons can do anything. Um, so he falls down on the ground and hurts his leg and he crushes something in his pocket and we pulls it out. It's the goober. It's the thing that he had been told by the previous Peter Parker, put this thing in the thing. It'll save the world. Don't put the thing in the thing. The world blows up. So he's broken the goober. So that's our parallel to the, the right. end. And it ends with him laying on the ground. Like, look, it, in fact, he's like, he holds up the broken goober and we see the sky behind him, right? Then the going, looking up the building, right? Like there's that picture of how tall everything is and the goober's broken. And, and then it shifts back to him just like from above looking down at him, sprawled out, laying on the ground. Like, so just the, all of the things in that scene. Oh, and specifically it has the, the ah yes. when he falls right yes and then 
now the the scene we've been talking about when he is equipped and he is ready and he is self-actualizing um it is the opposite in every way right like everything about it is the opposite and so having that other scene exist in the story earlier is a setup for this moment um I'm wondering if they have a moment, do they show him tying his shoes? Because it feels like they should show him tying his shoes. Um, when he gets dressed or something, does he tie his shoes and then put this, you know what I mean? Cause it's yeah. like, I'm not letting this crap happen to me again. Like, I don't know if it is or not, but I don't remember it specifically, but it feels like a, I don't almost like a, a throwaway thing that you could do. Like just show him like, boom, I'm ready. You know, it's like one of those things that we do when we well, get I, ready to run. I wonder if it's, that would be like, I wonder if that would be why they one of the reasons why they foregrounded him spraying his feet so much. Because those things cover his shoelaces. Well, his right? shoes look like they're on the outside of his costume. So I'm okay, I'm okay. scrolling through and I don't think that there's a moment where he ties his shoes. But you're right. If they had done that, it would have it been could, it's you know, it makes sense. And just now, like looking back at this scene and comparing, it's it's funny. Like that would be funny. Yes. Like, double, not the shoe. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Like right. cut all music and just show him like tying it a lot of times. Okay. Back into the music. Although, you know? See, I like, think my, that might actually be one of the reasons they didn't do that in this because the goal in this final scene is not humor. We're trying right, to right. get fully serious. He's owning himself. Right. So there are no comedy bits in this right in this montage it's all it's and that's another thing about the value shift this is so Mm -hmm. clear that the groundedness is the the origin value it's not like it's clear that groundedness is the origin it's also clear that determination and resolve are origins it's clear that this validation and like ownership of identity are the starting values it's not like fumblingness. Like think that mm-hmm. fumbly would be something that would come into play if they showed him tying right. his shoes or self-doubt or or thinking, looking backwards. That's not what's going on here. So that's not a right. play here. Yeah. So then he, so we've talked all about that preparation montage and cutting back and forth. And now let's talk about the jump. Oh, while we're here talking about this jump, let's talk about how the five commandments work in this scene. So where would you start this scene? Well, I start the scene when his dad shows up. Like, I'm taking it as a, a longer yeah. piece, I think. because um, I, So I was looking at it as, um, yeah, so to me... His friends have left him. He's he's accepting whatever. He's sitting there. He's all slumped in his chair at the time. You know, the clouds go by, whatever. It's later. And then dad shows up at the door. Um, and that being the inciting incident for him. Um, and then all of these, you know, all of the validation starts there, right? It's all of this validation that's happening. Um, his, his, the resolve of, he breaks out, right? He uses his powers to break out. And so it's like in that moment, it's weird. Okay. So I was thinking about this earlier. It's one of those things that like the weightedness of a commandment inside a scene, I think 
correlates with where the weightedness of the scene itself sits as a commandment in an act or as a commandment in the global story. So I think this entire section, because we've had the turning point of the story, well, the negative, you know, the, the all is lost because we've had that we've realized, you know, who our uncle is. We've lost our uncle. Um, we know that Kingpin is the one that killed him. We have all of those, all of those negative feelings. And then we experience the failure of being able to actualize because we've had that negative downturn that sits, puts us in the all is lost. It's automatically kind of at a place where you're like, so what are you going to do? You know, like, yep. are you going to stay here? So we're, we're in that, we're in this sort of crisis aspect of the global story of like, is Miles done? Is he out? Is he going to do it? Is he going to save his friends? You know, um, everything they've talked about in that scene, like it all sets it up for like, is Miles going to do it? Or is Peter Parker going to die because he had to step in and save everybody? So it's, it's makes the entire sequence a crisis sequence globally. It's the crisis of the story. Um, and so, so I, it feels like the crisis vibe kind of hangs over the entire thing. So it gets a little weird to go, well, where does the crisis really start or end? Or where does this or that? Because the whole thing is basically a global crisis. So you can feel it happening all the way through. Um, so so I like, so I guess I can, I can see how it can be separate scenes um, where you would go, dad showing up, his whole conversation. Then, okay, dad says those things to him and says, I love you. You don't have to say it back. And then he walks away. Now it's like, okay, turn, okay, you got all this stuff. Now dad's gone. Now what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Um, and then he makes, he has his own little crisis there, climax resolution. He, he uses his powers. He does break free and he gets to use all of his powers in that moment, right? To be invisible. So his friend doesn't see him and he, he goes, right? So that, so you can see that as an arc of commandments of inciting incident, progressive complications, turning point, crisis, climax, resolution. He's out. He's free. He's out. He's on the move. He can go do whatever he wants. And then he chooses to go to Aunt May's to go get equipped to go do this thing. So what it ends up feeling like, though, to me, is that the rest of that scene or the rest that second the scene now that we're looking at about going to the building, going from grounded on the ground to in the air feels like because it's a climax of that sequence because it's the climax of the, the, the middle build, right? It, it, the whole thing feels like a climax. And so, yeah, within it, we can see inciting incidents, progressive, you know, you can see all of those pieces that are small, you know, the smaller units of that, that create the whole thing. So when I was first watching it, it feels like a climax of the scene with his dad. And then, but if I, but yeah, but looking at it, but then it's, and it's like, it's like, there's a moment when he gets, you know, go back and forth. Cause he's just, he's on his way. He's doing the thing. I think it's because, hmm, give me a second. It's like, he goes to Aunt May's and gets all of his stuff. He gets equipped, positive progressive complications happening, right? He has to ride the train. He's got to get there. He's got to go up the stairs. He's got to be up at the top. And, and it's interesting because now 
because we took a minute and we went and looked at those other scenes, he could go back down the stairs. Like he could. that's an option. He could. Right. So now that you're here at the top, that is really the turning point. Like you're saying, you're going from the groundedness to now I'm actually on top of the building. You're so Am I going right. to jump or not? Am I going to complete this thing? This idea that I had back when I was tied up in the chair before I decided to use my powers to break out, like, it's because the, the the idea of this thing originates there. It's feel, but it's also arcs within arcs. You, you know, it's just all cohesive together. So yes, you just identified exactly why I struggled with this so much when I was first preparing for this for the last podcast episode. I shuffled through multiple potential turning points and crises and climaxes, and the way that I think about turning points is the moment where things most obviously clearly change. They're different. So like there's this clip that Sean Coyne showed us at one of the editor trainings where there's this caravan of people and they're going towards a battle in the woods and they're planning to go fight. So we're on our way in the caravan and there's a lot of conversation and tension, all kinds of stuff going on. We get there. There's been an ambush. And there's a giant ball of fire rolling down the hill. So they go from driving into the combat to ball of fire, turn around and reverse. They're leaving the forest. So when I am looking for turning points, I'm thinking about that visual. What is the ball of fire that's rolling down the hill that is such a clear, sharp, we were going forward, now we're going backward. Like, that's so visually clear. So that's why initially I got stuck on the most clear change for me, in just the context of the scene, uh, just uh, just the context of the progression of him going from the bottom of the building to the top of the building with that montage in there, the most clear change for me is when his webs catch and he starts swinging. It's like, oh, very clear visual. that's so interesting. But right. y- you pointed out that that doesn't cause him to have a crisis choice. And yeah, that's a resolution, exactly, right? That's exactly. The, yeah. the resolution of his crisis choice is that they catch and he swings. So he doesn't die. Mm-hmm. He swings. And we are in the tension of is he or is he not going to swing for 30 seconds? I timed it. For 30 seconds, we watch him fall. So then the thing that bothered me was the if that's not the turning point, then his crisis is jump or don't jump. That's a very clear decision. If I don't see a ball of fire, the second thing that I look for in the scene is the moment a character makes a decision, what is the biggest decision that they have to make? And the biggest decision he has to make is jump or don't jump. But what bothered me about that, if the scene starts at the bottom of the building and he goes through that whole preparation montage, that's where I was starting the scene. And the reason why I was starting the scene there is because it's a location change and a set of characters change and a time change, which are three mm-hmm. like loose boundaries. Those are not the t- actual definitions of a scene, but they are clues that you but can use helpful. to find, okay, well, where does something start and stop? Yeah. And it feels like it feels like when it comes to an analyzing scenes, it is always just, well, what constraints are you putting on yes, it? Like, exactly. what are you choosing to measure? Because it's all relative, right? Yes. So when you decide, oh, I'm going to measure, I'm going to look for an arc of change within this measure of story you'll find one. Exactly. You know what I mean? It just might be smaller or larger. So exactly. it's never wrong. It's just how useful is it to what you're actually trying to like figure out. And I recommend those 
I've I've described them here on the podcast in my episode on scenes. If you go to alicesutherland.com slash eight, you'll find the episode where I talk about how I use those boundaries and the reason why I recommend them, especially to writers who haven't done a lot of scene analysis, is because they're more obvious and visual. You can spot them more quickly than spotting, okay, what is the inciting incident that kicks off the action here? That's, that can be trickier to spot until you start like really learning how to walk, walk like walk through the action and analyze those things. So now that I had chosen at the base of the building, the scene begins, what choice does he make? The thing that bothered me was it feels like he makes the choice to jump as soon as he finishes the conversation with his dad. From the second, the one-sided conversation, from the second that he gets that glint in his eye and he pops the webs with his uh, energy, I'm like, choice is made. He's going to go jump. So where does that leave the whole other chunk of story? Like, what is the rest of the chunk of story there? And then we talked about how he's got all that internal dialogue going on in his head as he's going up up the building, which is one of the things that is beautiful about books that you don't get as easily in movies is you get deeply engrossed into the character's head in a book. And in this, the directors were like, we can't lose that. So we have to put voiceover in here so that we can hear his thoughts. Like we've got to hear what's going on in Miles's head in this scene because it's that important. So he goes up the building and he is he's he's on the cusp of jumping. And I'm thinking the decision is already made. He's already mm. decided to jump. Yeah. But in the context of that scene from earlier in the movie, you make the exact perfect point. He could walk down the stairs. He's done it before. He's literally right. done it before. It's always an option. We know that at that's no point, what the way out is. At no point is it irreversible yet. Everything right. about this is reversible. He could go back home to his dorm room. Yes. He could go back. Nothing about this is irreversible. So it's so it's getting to it's the final the final moment before you you can no longer put off this decision. So the even though you know he's decided you know, we know that he's determined, he's gone through all of this stuff. He's clearly taking action. He's clearly in a climactic phase of the sequence where he's making decisions and actions and he's going in a direction towards a goal. And, but it's like, there is a moment of hesitation. Like he pauses at the top of the building. Like he's standing there, right? He's standing there. He gets to the edge. He pulls down the mask. Like there's, there, that is when, you know, maybe we're not um, experiencing it as directly with him in that moment of all of everything, but it's also like, we don't have to everything he's felt earlier when he stood at the top and he fumbled around and he was afraid. It's like those feelings don't go away, but he's got composure now and he's focused now and he's just doing it differently. And we also hear in his interiority, the voiceover about, you know, how am I going to know when I'm ready? You don't know. You'll never know. It's a leap of faith. And so it's like, he doesn't know that this is going to work. It's not a sure thing. He has to acknowledge, I don't know how this is going to go. But every all of the validation that I have received in the last however many minutes gives me enough faith to leap, right? And so it's that final, that final moment of, you could turn back, but I'm not going to. And I'm just going to read for you all the dialogue that happens in that interiority as he's going up the building. So 
First off, he gets to Aunt May's house and she says, took you long enough. So that's not in his head. That's her literally saying, took you long enough, which is validation, this expectation that he was She always expected him to come back. She saw it in him from the day, from day one. Yep. Yeah. And then in his mind, we hear his dad say, I see this, this spark in you. It's amazing. Whatever you choose to do with it, you'll be great. And then his mom says, our family doesn't run from things. And then his dad says, you're the best of all of us, Miles. You're on your way. Keep going. And Miles says, when do I know I'm Spider-Man? And Peter Parker says, you won't. That's all it is, Miles, a leap of faith. Those are all saying, you have what it takes. We don't run away. We don't go back down the building. We know that the way forward is to keep going off the building. It is a leap of faith. Like, that's what that is saying. He, he has the spark. He will not run down the building. He's got to go up the building, and he's got to take a leap of faith literally walks that through that in his interiority and then yeah in the middle of the jump while we're waiting for him to fall we get the last line which is made him myself they fit perfectly which is where we hear he is prepared in the middle of the tension where we watch him flail it goes back goes back and forth between him flailing and him beautifully diving in that tension we hear that he is equipped he's got the the web slingers and she made they fit perfectly mm-hmm. yeah I love it. And I love too that like in all of this, this, you know, internal dialogue that's happening, it really does feel like it is shifting. Like you were saying from, it's clarifying that the reason why he's doing this isn't for ego. Yes. It isn't for revenge. It isn't for any of those things. It's like, this is who he is. And this is what his friends need him to be. Like, this is, you know, it's, it's this combination of, I was born for this, yes. you know, and I, some crazy shit happened to me. <laughs> like I got a radioactive spider, bit my hand, weird. I lost my uncle. Ah, you know, like all of these things, my friends are going to die if I don't do this. So there's all of this stuff that's happening. That's still true. And yet he's able to actualize from a place of self-love, right? Rather than a place of, um, of fear or from a place of anger, right, which is just another version of fear, like all of the, you know, he's shifted to, to owning that power, right? Yeah. So it's, it's gorgeous. Yes, it is. So he jumps. There are a few, there are a few uh, movie visuals that I want to highlight that I didn't even realize when I was originally doing this that I started learning as I dug into and read some more articles. First off, when he jumps, he's he's crouching on the side of the building. So at first he's sitting on top of the building and then he climbs onto the glass on the side of the building. So he is on a vertical plane stuck to the building with his hands and his feet. And when he jumps, he pushes himself off with his feet and he soars out into the air and the glass under his hands breaks. So he pulls the glass away with him and That is his fingers get sticky when he's afraid and they don't unstick before he jumps. He's jumping afraid. The fear doesn't go away. So that's a visual of him jumping while afraid, but still jumping in his leap of faith. So that's a really intentional visual. And then he falls and we get 30 seconds of falling and we get multiple angles of falling. We get the triumphant soaring directly up into the sky we get that which i read an article that said that that was actually one of the maybe the first 
image that they created of the whole movie was him going up into the skyline, uh, not falling, but ascending. Um, Mm -hmm. And then him flailing on his way down. And then this boom, 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 boom of him shooting down in a comic book style. And then him looking back up and shooting his webs. And we wait, we zoom out, we watch this little teeny tiny web catch on the top of the building. And then he swings. And when he swings, the whole screen basically goes from blue to yellow because we've stopped looking at the darkness of the building and the sky. And now we're we're surrounded by this bright yellow of the street lamps, which feels like a visual triumph. Like it feels to me like that's your trophy, this golden award. Um, So we've got these yellows and reds that are very vibrant and alive and award and celebratory. And the... Um, the animation, they intentionally have miles at a slower frame rate. I don't know if I'm using correct movie terms at a slower frame rate from all the other Spider-Man through the whole entire movie. So he looks a little bit jerkier and a little bit slower than all the other Spider-Man. And when he hits this, when he starts swinging, his frame rate speeds up to the same rate as the rest of them. So mm, that's amazing. Like, animation wise, he goes from being slightly behind and slightly slow to swinging like the rest of them. What's also really cool. I don't know if you've seen the new movie yet. The second movie. No, I have not. But I have not. they I mean, it's not a spoiler to say they go across the Spider-Verse. You encounter more spider They do? People. I had no Shocking, idea. Right? If uh, only the subtitle of the film had told me. <laughs> <laughs> well, they do the same thing with that movie where they have some characters at a different frame rate and they mm. like design different animation visually to capture different movements it's very very cool well and it's different realities exactly. right They're different universes every so it makes universe, sense that things are different every yeah. universe is animated differently it's really really cool that's super cool yeah so one thing i wanted to point out uh that i noticed that i think helps um okay so when he's falling they um it keeps the tension up for us is because it shows the people walking on the street pause yes. and look up and they're aware that he is falling right so that is so just the idea of having um third party observers looking at him of like and i think we as a viewer you acknowledge the horror that they're experiencing in that moment of being like oh my god someone's falling from a building like ah are they going to be okay like that anticipation of horror there and then um and then also the like amazement of once he starts doing it, you know, once he, he attaches and swings, like, the people in the cars, like, he runs on the side of the building and the people in the office are like, whoa, it's like, whoa, Spider-Man's back, right? Like, Spider-Man's yeah. not dead, you know? Like, like this is like, like, so it's just, so all of that was really cool, but I, I loved, I was like, oh, it's not just like, look how far down, look, there's people walking, like, that's, we're above them and we can see people walking. It's, they stop and turn and look at him and that does something for us visually like it connects us to the the emotion of ah is it gonna work and then whoosh it works and we're like whoa like to be there on the street to watch that happen like it's just interesting how much those little moments convey and add to our our viewer experience yes yes very intentional every shot in that 30 second fall everything is designed to increase tension in like two dozen different ways. 
every single shot increases it in a new way or like five new ways. Yes, because it is horrifying to see someone jump off a building. Like I thought for a second when I was looking down at those people in one of the times that I rewatched the scene, I was like, that is a nightmare scenario. Like that's a bad thing. Anytime that we have ever heard of someone jumping off a building, that is a terrible, terrible thing. So yeah, to be the person on the ground looking up at that would be horrifying. Like, yeah, like thinking this person is terrible that they ended up at the top of this building in whatever mental and emotional state that they are in. And it's terrible for me that I am the person who happens to be on the ground at the moment when this is happening. Like this is all levels of bad. So mm-hmm. then it switches to triumph. He swings. He he leapt. He made his leap of faith and he swings. So we've made it through the whole scene. Is there anything? After that moment that you wanted to talk about. He lands again. Yes, that's it. And he takes his mask off again. And it's like, you know, it's this different, it's this different feeling. Yes. We see his own awe and recognition of what he's just done. Like he's aware of how monumental this was. And we get that little breath of resolution to our resolution where yes. we acknowledge how big that was. And then he yes. jumps again. Like he keeps going. Yep. That was just then it's like, start. oh, no big deal. NBD, I've done it before. Now I'm just, now I do this thing. Yep. So yeah, I think that moment when he lands. Um, okay. Well, we've walked this whole scene, which is fantastic. Had a great time breaking it down. Is there anything that, before I wrap us up, is there anything that you would suggest for writers to capture the same kind of emotional experience that this scene does, because obviously the tools that they use in the scene are very visual, which is not what we, they're visual, they're audio, they're animation, colors, music, all of that. And writers don't use those tools, but we Mm -hmm. use different tools to accomplish the same thing. Like this Mm -hmm. scene, this moment of story is something we also accomplish in writing. So do you have any, Thoughts or advice for writers on how to accomplish this? So it starts from, you know, the the foundation of what the story that you're even telling, right? Why are you telling the story that you're telling? So I feel like creating moments like this in a scene, in a moment, in a very specific way, it, it has to, you, it goes all the way back to like globally, like what are you doing? Like what is the, you know, it's like, Every, every tool and principle and every aspect of your story that has happened, like all work together to create this fundamental moment, which we pointed out so many times, like, oh, all the things that came before this moment, all the setups early on, you know, all of these things, having all that, they have to know that this moment is going to happen and how they want you to feel in this moment. They have to know that in order to know what to tell you first, like all the information they give you and they set it all up so that you can have this transformational experience. So anytime a transformation, a value shift, anything, it's a very distinct before, during, and after, right? It's beginning, middle, and end. It is a pre-state, there is a shift, and there's an after. And we want to feel that change, you know, the the seesaw, fulcrum, up-down feeling. We want that. So to do that, it starts globally, Um, and you're looking for what are those, you know, what's the, what's the shift? What's, what am I going for? What is that feeling that I want the reader to have at the end, at the last page? And then 
And then it always, it's kind of just becomes running those scenarios, you know, the little sequence in your mind of what each moment in the story, it's that same thing. How do I want the reader to feel right now? How do I want them to feel at the end of the scene? How do I want them to feel, you know, at the beginning of the scene? Well, what happened in the last scene? Like just that everything is connected and it's nothing in a story can be, um, it's not a vacuum. Like it can't be looked at in isolation. Like you can, but the context is never in isolation. It's yes. always connected to everything else. So I think it's, um, you know, it starts early and it's something that it doesn't actually matter um, if you haven't thought of it until now. Like it's never too late to start thinking about those things, right? Um, and you can go back and set all of that stuff up. So I think just having an intention and just that awareness, right? Like the fact that everyone, you know, all of the, everyone in that worked on this film knew the vision of like, this is what we're trying to do. And it's named so explicitly. Um, and so there's an interesting tension between uh, the planning of a thing, the execution of a thing and the creative um, bubbling up of a thing, that inception thing that just happens that you can't specifically articulate or you can't really explain how it happens. You just have an idea, right? You just have like some a happy accident that works, like something that you're like, oh, I just wrote my way in. I just pantsed my way through that scene. Wow, I landed on something super cool. Like it's never just one thing, right? Like all of those elements have to happen. So it's just, it's interesting to um, let all the phases of, of development and all the phases of creation and writing happen, not make any of them wrong, saturate yourself in whatever phase you're in and then also not be afraid to go, okay, cool. I'm going to, we did that. I'm going to go look at this other thing. I'm going to listen to Alice's podcast about value shifts and I'm going to very intentionally look at what do I have? What exists? What did I want to exist? Like, And I, I love all of that. And what I started thinking as you were saying that is every piece of this scene and this movie are crafted very, very intentionally and that didn't happen on the first draft. This is not a one draft movie. Exactly. That's 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 it. That's exactly it. So in order to create a scene like this, you get multiple passes where you discover the next layer within each pass. So you discover, yes. okay, so these are the actions that are going to happen. And then you discover, okay, this is the place in the story where this is happening and what we need to happen within the context of the story. And then you discover, oh, that's where he was coming from in order to get here. And then you discover, oh, that's the emotion that he's going to feel here. And then you discover these are the things, the messages he needs to hear in order to go through this, this progression. So all of these elements that we just discussed were intentional choices made through many, many iterations of creating this right. scene. Once they got really clear about what they wanted, needed it and wanted it to do, that's how you know what to actually pick in the end, right? Yes. You had to, but yeah, you have to experience it. Oh, that didn't work. That was, you. we have to go through Miles' exact transformation of failure first. Yes. And then go, what, wait, there's more in there. There's spark. I can't do it wrong. Like all of those feelings, it's the, it's why, it, you know, story is so meta and nerdy but like it's it's so epic to see him go through that and go that's exactly what you're doing that's exactly what you're doing as a writer you have to it's okay fail on every scene probably eight thousand times and then you're like aha i've got it and then yep and then the website baby 
web slingers. <laughs> and they hit the top of the building and you swing off into the sunset and everything is great. So, And Alice is like, your scene is perfect. I have nothing to say. <laughs> Onward. Next. That like, is, <laughs> I think, the great aspiration of all my clients. When can I send this to Alice and she'll just not give me feedback on it? She'll just sign right? off and say it's perfect. Um, yeah, I'm fine with it. Maybe, <laughs> maybe that'll happen. Feel free to test me. Uh, <laughs> so... That is a fabulous note for us to wrap up on. Thank you so much, Kim, for joining me in this yeah. conversation. This kind of stuff is so fun. I love getting into the weeds of story analysis like this. So thank you for jumping yeah, absolutely. into this with me. My pleasure. So there you go. Kim's and my deep dive analysis of the leap of faith scene from Spider-Man. This scene is a moment of triumph. The point where Miles transforms his complete failure into true self-actualization. And every choice the creators made, from the value shifts to the progression of events to even the colors on the screen, contribute to the emotional experience that we have as viewers. It all makes us feel Miles' triumph right along with him. It gives me chills. Yes, even after watching the scene probably two dozen times or more over the last months, I still get chills from this scene. It's that good. You can create scenes in your novels that give readers chills like that, too. You can create stories that stand up this well to this kind of scrutiny, and I hope that you do. If you haven't yet, I recommend listening to episode 33 of Your Next Draft next. That's where I'll give you actionable strategies to edit your scenes in such a way that you can capture emotion this powerfully in your writing. You can find that episode at alicesudlow.com slash 33. And if you enjoyed hearing from Kim in this episode, be sure to find her online. Her website is kimberkessler.com, and of course, you can find that link in the show notes too. And every month, she does a free live editing workshop where you can get on Zoom with her and workshop any writing or editing challenge that you're facing. She's awesome, and I know that you'll love getting her feedback on your story. And that's it for this episode. While I'm sure there is so much more that I could say about Spider-Man, I'm going to go ahead and hang up the Spidey suit, for a little while at least. Tune in next week on the podcast for something completely different. And until then, happy editing! That's it for this episode of Your Next Draft. If you enjoyed what you've just heard, go ahead and subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. And while you're at it, would you mind leaving a rating and review? That makes a huge difference in helping other writers discover this podcast too. Plus, I love reading your reviews, and they help me know what's helpful to you so I can be sure to share more tips you'll love. All right, pick up your pin, get back to editing, and I'll see you next week with a new episode. 